2 Kings chapter 15 and verse 8. In the thirty and eighth year of Azariah, king of Judah, did Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reign over Israel in Samaria six months. Now we've left Azariah, also known as Uzziah, to sleep with his fathers in death. He's dead, buried, gone, we're moving on. And he died as a leper. He had trespassed in the house of the Lord, tried to burn incense in there. And when those priests said, don't you do it, you don't belong in here, it's not your job, he got mad. And when he got mad, God said, all right, how about some leprosy for that anger? That's what he got rewarded for his unrighteous anger was a case of leprosy that never went away. And although Uzziah was mighty in battle, he lived out his leprous days watching his son Jotham judge the nation of Judah. And now on the throne of Israel in Samaria, we study about the short-lived reign of King Zechariah. So let's look at verse 9. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. He departed not from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. Now, although Zechariah was another evil king, at least his reign was short. It was six months. Some of the kings were on the throne a long time and were evil. But this one was evil only for six months, at least on the throne. He was evil before he took the throne. And it ought to be our prayer as Christians that if an evil leader will not repent, that his reign would be cut short, just like Zechariah. We don't want him in office. He's not doing us any good. Would you like to know how to pray for your leaders? A Christian ought to want to know how to pray for their leaders if you don't already know. Well, the Apostle Paul gives the example in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, if you're taking notes. Here's how to pray for your leaders. He said, I exhort therefore that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. If you've just joined us, either in person or online, we are in 2 Kings chapter 15 and verse 9, commenting on the verse we just read. Now looking at the outline the Apostle Paul gave us in that passage from 1 Timothy chapter 2, we first note that he said to pray for them. We don't want to miss that part, do we? How easy is it for us to disagree with and to criticize the evil acts of our leaders? And by the way, we ought to do that when they are against God's word. If they're against God's word, then it's evil. But in doing that, in our criticism of them, in our evaluation of the decisions they make and the words they speak, we must not leave off the responsibility to also pray for them. 
Paul exhorted that supplication, prayers, and intercessions be made. In other words, pray for them. He didn't say, well, just pray for the good ones. He said, pray for them. All that are in authority, pray for them. He also exhorted or commanded that the giving of thanks be made for them. So when we have leaders who act according to the mandates of God's word, then we ought to be thankful for them. We ought to say, Lord, thank you for that man, that woman, whoever it was that voted for this righteous cause. Thank you for them. And especially if that person is your representative or your senator, your city council person, your county commissioner, school board member, whoever it is that you're praying for. And I know that many politicians have used religion as a political tool to appeal to voters who identify as evangelicals, Christians, other religious affiliations. But there are some leaders in every level. There are some who are truly born again and who have a steep uphill climb to make their righteous voices heard in the chambers of the Senate, in the House of Representatives, in the local city council, on the school board. Boy, if they ever need it anywhere, it's in the school boards because that's where the devil is getting a hold of our children at an early age. And we need righteous people on those, on those school boards to say no. We're not teaching that filth in this school district. We're going to teach these kids how to read, how to write. We're going to teach them about the history of their country, about economics, about uh, math, all of that. We're going to make sure they know that. We're going to leave off all of this social justice stuff that's unnecessary because if a child is so well-schooled in the, a certain political belief but they can't read, what good does it do them? And finally, Paul gave the reason that we ought to pray for our leaders. And this really tells you how to pray for your leaders. He said that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. So you say, why should I pray for our current president? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Why should I pray for my school board member? For the same reason. And if there's anything our country needs right now, it's peace and quiet. <laughs> well, we don't have it, do we? If there's anything our homes need, is peace and quiet. Now, we love our grandchildren like nobody loves their grandchildren. But I'll tell you what, we both look at each other when we see their taillights going away from the house. And I'll say, listen to that. She'll say, what? I'll say, that's right, nothing. Peace and quiet. And then we'll have them back again next time. And that's not really what I'm talking about as much. It's just a silly example. But you know, during my short life, this country has become increasingly chaotic, uh, loud. Everybody wants their voice heard. They want their cause heard. Uh, Anti-God, and it's increasingly so as the days go by. And along the way, God has blessed us with some leaders who were better than others for after all when we vote 
for in any election, we're often voting for the lesser of two evils, aren't we? It's a sad place to be. As uh, one of our uh, esteemed men in the Rockwall County, I won't call his name, said one time, I said, well, uh, which of these two candidates for a certain office do you like? He said, I wish we had a third one. <laughs> and that's often the way I feel. Who else wants to run? I don't like either one of them. And anyway, God has blessed us with some who were better than others. He has suffered some who were evil to take the throne. But you know, we're not going to truly have peace and quiet, the kind that Paul wrote about, until the Prince of Peace comes back and sets this mess in order. It's just not going to happen. When man threw off God's government, when man rejected God's government in the Garden of Eden, then he said, we'll do this our own way. We'll take care of this. And man has tried all kinds of governments from dictatorships to oligarchies and socialism and communism and uh, using the theocracies that are apart from the Bible and democracy and representative republic and all of these have a shortcoming, a major flaw. And that is at some point they disagree with the word of God. And so one thing that's for sure is that no ruler, no political representative of the people is going to accomplish this peace. Not the United Nations, not NATO, and Congress certainly will not. So whether it's Solomon on the throne, where he had peace for 40 years, or this Zechariah on the throne of wickedness for a short time, for six months, the peace of God is not going to be seen on this increasingly corrupted earth where we live. It's got to be made new again. The earth has to be made new again. Jesus said, behold, I make all things new. He didn't say, I'm going to refurbish what you guys did and see if we can make it work a little better. What does a refurbished transmission eventually do? It goes out again, doesn't it? It may run for a while, but it goes out again. It, may, it must be made new again, and only Jesus can rightly claim to be able to do that. And one other thing about praying for your leaders. Do you realize that what Paul wrote, Timothy, is also how you should pray for your church leaders? If Brother Fulton and I are doing what we're supposed to do as dictated by God's word, then our teaching is going to encourage you. It may not always feel like that, especially if your sin is being preached on that day. It's going to instruct you on how to live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. That's, that's what our teaching ought to do. Because otherwise, Paul wouldn't have said, this is why you need to pray for your leaders. And so, in Zechariah's short reign... It was anything but quiet and peaceable. Now let's look at verse 10 in our text. And Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him. That is, against uh, Zechariah. 
and smote him before the people, and slew him, and reigned in his stead. Shalom's name is an interesting name because in Hebrew it means retribution, payback. What an appropriate name for a man who fulfilled a prophecy that God made to King Jehu back in 2 Kings chapter 10. And we studied Jehu back in 2 Kings chapter 10 and verse 30 where it said, And the Lord said unto Jehu, Because thou hast done well in executing that which is right in mine eyes, and hast done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in mine heart, thy children of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. Now that was the positive part. The negative part was, you're not going to have a seed sit on there for the fifth generation. I'm cutting it off right there. I'm going to give you three more generations. That'll be a total of four. And after that, none of your seed will sit on the throne anymore because Jehu had also done something that displeased the Lord, which we studied. And so in our verse, it says that Shalom smote him before the people. He smote, he struck Zechariah before the people. And sometimes this happens to a wicked ruler. He killed him in front of everybody. You all, I think most of you remember the, the wicked Libyan dictator named Muammar Gaddafi. And Gaddafi was assassinated. And his body was publicly displayed in the freezer of a local market along with two of his dead cohorts for four days. It made a public spectacle. He was a wicked dictator, and he had caused the deaths and maiming and imprisonment and persecution of a lot of innocent people over his 40-year reign. How about that? He, was, he reigned for 40 years, and it was misery. And so, in this case, the death of Zechariah was also made a public event, and Shalom did not hide the fact that he was willing to kill the king to take the throne. That's how bad things were. This man had no fear of the throne whatsoever. And so Zechariah was that fourth generation, and we'll also see that in verse 12 in just a moment. And so as Shalom sat on the throne, he was not a descendant of Jehu. And that kept that fifth generation of Jehu from being the next king to reign and that fulfilled God's word. Love, I love seeing that in the Bible. When you see God's word fulfilled from a promise he made a hundred years ago, a thousand years ago, or twenty years ago, then that ought to cement your faith in God's word so that when you read that God said this thing is going to happen in the future and it hasn't happened yet, you know it'll happen. You don't have to say, well, it hadn't happened yet. Well, there are several things that haven't happened yet because they're not due yet. They're not supposed to happen yet. But when they do, if you're alive or if you've gone to be with the Lord, you'll know his, his perfect will. You'll say, yeah, that's just like God said it would happen. And that's where I want to be in my Christian life is believing God's word just like it is. Now, if you'll look with me in verse 11. And the rest of the acts of Zechariah, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. Now perhaps those acts would serve a student of history if he were trying to study what things those kings had wrought during their lifetimes, during their reign. 
But those acts were not edifying to us, and so they were not included. In fact, this king is not mentioned by name in Second Chronicles. You know, most of the kings are mentioned in both Second Chronicles and Second Kings, First Chronicles, First Kings. You see a parallel there. So he was not uh, he was not high up on the list as far as God was concerned. And then verse twelve, it says, "This was the word of the Lord which He spake unto Jehu, saying, Thy sons shall sit on the throne of Israel unto the fourth generation." And so it came to pass. And I love how God reminds us. When we read something like this, he, it's like he says, hey, put this in there and tell them, this is what I did back in such and such chapter. This is what I said was going to happen and it came to pass. That's God telling us that right there. Just in case you're reading and saying, well, I don't know about that. Or maybe you've forgotten that he had prophesied it. In verse 13, Shalom the son of Jabesh began to reign in the nine and thirtieth year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned a full month in Samaria. Now, who was Shalom? Well, we know he was a murderer, don't we? He killed the king. He was the son of Jabesh. And we don't know a lot about Shalom or where he came from, but we do know in the Bible there was a place called Jabesh Gilead. And then we know from Joshua chapter 13 when the land was divided up among the tribes of the children of Israel, as God had ordained, that Gilead was a place that was divided among the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. All of those tribes had wanted to receive their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River. They said, we want our inheritance over here. We don't want to cross over Jordan with you. This was in Moses' day. And if you remember, Moses said, that's fine, but... For right now, when we need you for war and to, to conquer and to get all this settled, you help us. And then when that's all settled down, you go back over there and you can have that land. I gave you the Texas summary of that King James language. Mostly because I don't have it memorized. And so in any case, Shalom did evil by assassinating the king and taking this throne himself. You know, it would have been better in those days as chaotic and wicked as Israel was. It would have been better that a prophet led those people back to God. It would have been better for the throne to be unoccupied. After all, it hadn't been God's perfect will for them to have their own king. The, he sent judges to judge them and didn't send kings to judge them before all this mess, and the people did that which was right in their own eyes. Well, now we have kings, most of whom do that which is right in their own eyes. And so that's why Israel is in such a mess in those days and now. Shalom was on the throne, it says, for a month. That's not a long time to be on the throne, is it? That's not even enough time to set your furniture up, get your refrigerator where you want it, He's probably still living out of boxes, if you ask me. And now verse 14, for Menachem the son of Gadai went up from Tirzah and came to Samaria and smote Shalom the son of Jabesh in Samaria and slew him and reigned in his stead. 
Menachem, the son of Gadai, which appears to signify that he was a Gadite, meaning from the tribe of Gad, one of the 12 tribes. And in all this killing, do you know what stands out to me the most? Is that these are Israelites killing other Israelites. They're their own worst enemies. Now, you've probably heard it said before that your own worst enemy is looking at you in the mirror when you get up in the morning or at noon or whenever you get out of bed. And that's often the case, isn't it? But do you know who our worst enemies are as a country? Some people say, well, China. China, that's our worst enemy. Or Russia. Well, how about Iran or some of these other countries? No, our worst enemies are the people living among us in our own country. Did you know that? It's statistically true. According to the CDC, in 2021, there were 1.4 million visits to the emergency room as a result of assaults. That's Americans hurting each other, inflicting injuries on each other serious enough to go to the emergency room. Now, there were more than 1.4 million assaults because a lot of people didn't go to the emergency room. 1.4 million assaults where people who live in America hurt other people, and many of those were in the household. They were domestic. In that same time period, there were over 26,000 homicides Now, these are people living in America killing other people who live in America. 21,000 of those were with a firearm. And no, the firearm didn't jump up by itself and shoot anyone ever. King Shalom, a greedy soul, but still an Israelite, was killed by Menachem, another greedy soul who was also an Israelite. And you know, we read about praying for our leaders. I wonder if Shalom ever prayed for Zechariah. I wonder if Menachem ever prayed for Shalom. Probably not. Both of them used the sword to accomplish what should have been handled in prayer. And we do that too. Sometimes we may not kill somebody, but... We try to use force or coercion or strong persuasion with someone to do something that ought to be handled by prayer. When you witness to someone, well, there's a good example. You can get in their face and witness. That doesn't usually work. In fact, it doesn't work. Or you can tell them the gospel, answer their questions, and then pray for them and let that be between them and God. They have the truth. Now, whether they believe it or not is something that is handled between them and God. But King Shalom tried to handle this with a sword. And so Menachem said, all right, I'll do the same to you. Listen to what Jesus said to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, verses 51 through 52. Jesus would not have agreed with this Action right here. Matthew 26, verses 51 through 52. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword 
and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into its place. For all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. That's where the saying comes from. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. Well, that's again something that came from the Bible. And in John 18, 26, which is where this same story is told, we are told that swordsman is Peter. That's why I said it was his name. Now think about what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Those Jewish priests who were coming after Jesus were dead wrong. They were accusing him of blasphemy, the Son of God, accusing him of blasphemy. They wanted him dead. He was interfering with their way of religion. He certainly was a threat to their power as priests and high priests. And so you would think, all right, in the flesh now, you would think if Peter were to cut off the ear or maybe cut the head off of one of those high priest servants, that'd be a good thing. Jesus said, put your sword up. That's not how we handle this problem. And that's what Menachem should have done. That's what Shalom should have done. Leave your sword. Go get on your knees in prayer, on your face or in your prayer closet or in your pickup driving down the road and ask the Lord to intervene and to turn the king's heart toward him and the people's heart toward him. Peter thought he was doing right by swinging a sword against one who came after Jesus. And rather than commending Peter for smiting the unrighteous priest servant, he chastised him. In our text, Menachem is not to be commended for killing the king, even though the king was unrighteous. Jesus sees these things a little differently than we do. <laughs> Thank God. Verse 15, and the rest of the acts of Shalom and his conspiracy which he made. Behold, they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. So Shalom will go down as the conspirator. That'll be his grave title. He'll be known for murdering the king of Israel, Zechariah. Verse 16, then Menachem smote Tifsah, and all that were therein, now that's a town, and the coast thereof from Tirzah, because they opened not to him. Therefore he smote it, and all the women therein that were with child he ripped up. That's not the last time you'll see that in the Bible or the first time. Not to be content with the throne. Menachem shows his utter depravity by taking revenge on the town of Tifsa, by smiting it and by killing their pregnant women. He didn't want any more from that place to be born. That's how mad he was. Why? Because they would not open up to him. In other words, they didn't agree with what he did to Shalom. They didn't say, oh, sure, you're our king. They, they viewed him as a murderer. And so, if you remember, we saw this level of evil 
later on in history with King Herod, who was on the throne whenever Jesus was born. In fact, in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. You remember, Herod wanted the wise men to come back and tell him, hey, here's where he's going to be born. Herod lied and said, oh, I want to worship him. Go worship him. No, he wanted to kill him. And so he killed all of these precious children, two years old and under, all over Bethlehem and all the cities and the, the states and who knows how far it went. But you know, you look at Herod who killed them outside the womb, and then you look at Menachem who killed the babies inside the womb. There's not any difference. The killing of children in the womb is the same as killing two-year-olds outside the womb in God's eyes. There's no difference, no matter how the pro-abortion crowd tries to spin it. Menachem was no better, and he was no worse than Herod. And neither of them were better or worse than those who have their children killed while they're still in the womb. According to the Guttmacher Institute, in 2020, there were over 930,000 babies killed in the U.S. while in their mother's wombs. Did you hear that? That's almost one million babies. And there probably were more than that. This is what was reported. Those numbers came from the health data surveys and questionnaires that this institute collected from so-called legal abortion providers. How do you like that? Now we'll narrow it down to a state. In the year 2019, the state of Mississippi reported 3,180 abortions to the CDC. And they broke it down by race, ethnicity. And of those 3,180 abortions, 74% were performed on little black babies. 26% were performed on Anglo, Hispanic, Asian, and others. In other words, nobody's blameless. Nobody. Nobody gets by. Nobody says, well, we don't do. Yeah, you do. So the next time you hear someone say that police officers are killing off one ethnicity or another, remember how many mothers willingly walk into an abortion clinic and sacrifice their precious unborn babies, murder them. I want you to listen to what Alveda King said. You may know who she is. She's the niece of Dr. Martin Luther King. She was interviewed by CNS News about abortion, and she said this, Abortion is one of the most violent, reprehensible, discriminatory crimes against humanity. There is overwhelming evidence that many abortions have been performed to reduce minority populations in America. Life is sacred. The reality of the American dream must include everyone from the womb to the tomb. And I say amen to that.
I may not agree with everything that woman says, but boy, I'm in definite agreement with that right there. So Menachem, king of Israel, you are guilty. I've got a new slogan, by the way. Baby lives matter. How about that? Every single baby's life matters. And they're helpless to do anything about it. You know, people wonder, well, what is your stance on abortion? Well, when it comes up in the Bible, we'll tell you what it is. We're not ashamed to do that. And that's what happened. It came up in the Bible, and so we're not going to run away from it. I loved my children as soon as I knew my wife was pregnant. I hadn't seen them yet. I saw that little blurry sonogram and said, oh, well, that, I think the, oh, there's a hand. You know how it used to be back when the first came out with those sonograms. I loved my grandchildren while they were still in their mother's wombs. I enjoyed watching their videos of the, the improved sonograms before they were ever born. But you know what? I did not love them as much as God did. God encouraged Jeremiah at the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry. And boy, did Jeremiah need it. He had a rough time, didn't he? And who was his worst enemy? His own people. It wasn't somebody from across the world. It was his own people. And in Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5, we read where God said, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. All of this happened before Jeremiah was ever born. So with all that, it does not appear to me that God saw Jeremiah as just a blob of tissue. Or as what the pro-abortion crowd calls an unviable fetus. In other words, outside the womb it can't live on its own to be thrown away at the pleasure of the mother and baby daddy, as they're called. Dr. Adrian Rogers once said, there are no illegitimate children, but there are illegitimate parents. And with all that, listen up, all the Menachems of the world, no matter who you are, where you live, when you kill an unborn baby, you are killing someone that God knew, whom God sanctified, and for whom God had a purpose that we didn't know about. And I have a question for you. If, and I mean people watching online or whoever it may be who say, well, I still think it's okay, it's a mother's choice. Would it have been okay with you if your mother had aborted you? Of course not. Jesus said, no man hateth his life. Now, for those who may not have watched us before or watched us very long or been in our services for long, this is how we deal with topics in preaching. We wait until they come up in our text, and then we speak about them. We don't wait until Christmas to tell you about Jesus' birth. We're liable to teach on Jesus' birth any time. If it comes up in the text, we're going to teach on it. We don't say, well, we should save that for Christmas. We're not saving it for any time. You don't have the promise of tomorrow. We don't wait until Easter to teach on the Passover. 
And we don't wait on Gay Pride Day to teach against homosexuality. So when we teach on something like abortion, it's because it came up in the text. And we want you to know what God's Word says about it. We don't need to holler and rant and rave about our own personal opinions. We need to tell you what God says about it. And what our hope is, is that will then become your opinion as well. It will become a conviction, not just an opinion that can change with the wind. Now I want to heal up the wound here. Based on the statistics, there is a likelihood that somebody either in here or who is watching or who will watch has had an abortion before or paid for one or been a part of one. And let me tell you, if you're a Christian, God has put that sin at the cross. That sin's under the blood, just like every other sin. You don't have to walk around the rest of your life saying, well, I'm going to hell for that if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, it's not abortion that's sending you to hell. It's your unbelief. It's your refusal to trust in what Jesus did to take away all of your sins, the least and the worst, every one of them. If you think, well, God can't save a murderer, God can't save somebody who's killed a little child, then how did he save the Apostle Paul? How did he save David? And all of the others. How did he save Moses? He certainly can, and he will. Now let's look in verse 17. In the 9 and 30th year of Azariah, king of Judah, began Menachem, the son of Gadai, to reign over Israel, and reigned ten years in Samaria, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, he departed not all his days from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. For ten years, evil Menachem ruled Israel. Boy, eight years seems like a long time, doesn't it? And it is. But this is ten years. He was, based on what we just read and what we know about Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Menachem was most likely a member of the church of the golden calf. Now, I doubt he fellowshiped with people who were members of the church in the shade or the church on the mountain. And he sinned, and he made Israel to sin. In verse 19, And Pul, the king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menachem gave Pul a thousand talents of silver, that his hand might be with him to confirm the kingdom in his hand. Now, this is what happens when an evil king is on the throne. He joins hands with the enemy, which in this case was Assyria, a Gentile nation. And Assyria had been a thorn in Israel's side, just like every other Gentile nation had been. And rather than fighting against Assyria, Menachem bribed Assyria. Rather than repenting and turning to the Lord... Menachem reneged on his responsibility as a king. You know, it's the job of a king or a president or a leader of any kind, but particularly a king, as we're looking at it here, to protect the citizens of his country from evil, both evil within and evil without. Menachem has already showed us, shown us he was willing to kill his fellow Israelites and rip up the women who were with child as he did in Tifsa. And now he's willing to hold hands 
with the enemy who sought to do battle against Israel. Many of the wicked leaders of this country over history and now have sent money to foreign countries that hate us in order to buy their influence. That includes countries that would like to see us wiped off the map or made tributaries to them. In other words, that they would conquer us and we would become little China's, little Russia's, little Germany's, little Japan's, whoever it may be at the time in history. And if you'll look back in verse 19, it tells us the reason he did that Menachem gave this money to Pul, king of Assyria, was that his hand might be with him to confirm the kingdom in his hand. That is, the bribe, the purpose of the bribe, was to guarantee that Pool would guarantee that Menachem was really the king of Israel. In other words, hey, Pool, no matter what happens between us, is it okay if I stay the king? We'll give you money if you won't attack us, but be sure you recognize me as king of Israel. And that's a straight-up bribe, isn't it? So if you thought that a country paying off its enemies was a relatively new thing, now you know it's not. It's thousands of years old. Nations were doing this then. Nations are doing it now, just like in our text. Verse 20, And Menachem exacted the money of Israel, even of all the mighty men of wealth, of each man fifty shekels of silver, to give to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and stayed not there in the land. Next week, because we're out of time, next week we will come back and see what that meaneth. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad to be in your house today, and we're thankful for every single person who came, who tuned in, and those who will watch at a later time, because we know, Lord, that this was by divine appointment, not accident that they listened to the message, that they heard the word of God. And I pray, Lord, even though your word offers a stinging rebuke to us sometimes, while other times it embraces us in the arms of grace, that we would see that it's good for us in either case. And we'd seek to learn it, understand it, and obey it. And that's our prayer for each one who attended and who listened to this message today. In Jesus' name, amen.